can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal but for once in your life be real If you can't stand the pressure, stay out of James Cameron's 11 million gallon nuclear vat, alright? Welcome one and all to Be Real. It's your movie reviewing and reappraising genre hopping podcast on the Playlist Podcast Network. I'm Chance Solem Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. And we are just beyond jazzed to be here today uh alongside shows like the discourse the fourth wall and indie beat here on the playlist check them all out listen on spotify itunes stitcher wherever you get your shows but we're beyond jazz for one of the most be real categories ever conceived if you don't know the premise of the show it's three movies at a time based around a similar genre how similar how tight these genres tend to get uh, is up to our discretion. I mean, Noah and I have done 132 episodes. Some are loose, but this one, this one is tight. Noah, you want to tell the people? It's as tight as they come. These are movies about underwater dive teams encountering an alien presence, all made in the year 1989. Can you believe it? Can you believe it? So, of course, we're doing, and this is the 30th anniversary for all these movies. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was just about to say the we're doing it for the 30th anniversary of the abyss which is the only one anyone remembers but yeah. ostensibly it is all of their 30th anniversaries it's so that's hilarious as we've mentioned it's yeah james cameron's the abyss turns 30 along with deep star six and leviathan should we start with the abyss that seems only right one must start with the abyss. Well, I wonder too if it isn't worth starting with like some larger questions as we dive in, no pun oh, yeah. intended, about like why these three almost identical movies were yeah. all made in the same year and none of them really did very much business. <laughs> about what was in the water that year, pun what, intended. There you go. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you <laughs> have a hilarious list of things. So I just want to read off like a, you know, maybe a dozen things that like were happening uh, in 1989. Of course, these movies were made in 1988 and thus the logical fallacy of this list. Oh, no. George H.W. Bush sworn in 41st president of the United States. That's it. That's it. It was an executive order, right? I want three three movies with an underwater dive team who are unexpectedly... Dealing with an alien force. You're it's gonna all do the it. points of light come to these underwater. <laughs> yes. Uh, um, so number two, maybe this is more. <laughs> <laughs> number two is Ted Bundy's executed. Uh huh. I think we all felt about uh, three thousand meters under when that happened. But think about it a little bit, like the idea of okay, like we're coming to the end of the era of the romanticized American serial killer. Like, what is the next? <laughs> what is the next great threat? Because that's also what I want to talk Water about pressure. too. Is that like, unlike other movies, you know, that are of a certain genre, there aren't like these underwater diving mining rigs don't exist right well this is a big this is a big thing is that i you know i did cursory research on underwater mining it exists but it has never been successful has never been part of like the pop culture lexicon well it's probably not successful because of all the alien creatures i mean three out of three times you try to do something at that depth uh it just doesn't work out that's right. Um, Do you think it's the Soviets leaving Afghanistan? Well, okay, so now we actually hit on something worth discussing, which is yes. that all three of these movies, which are maybe set in the future, I think The Abyss is explicitly not, and I was looking at one of the computer readouts, one of the many, many computer readouts that you see in these movies. James Cameron goes I, nuts for a computer. In fact, a, a computer readout is the climax of this movie. And I think I Leviathan, love you, wife. and i think leviathan is actually maybe set in the year 2027 how when does that possibly come into play weller puts in for the weather report it says 7 27 27 
But none of these like have a title card that's like this is the future. Right. And none um, of them specifically like the technology doesn't look like it's from the future. In fact, in Leviathan and Deep Star Six, they look like they're from the past. <laughs> right. <laughs> but the funny thing is that it's a hilarious kind of example of sci-fi blindness in the sense of even though they are all inherently futuristic, nobody can imagine life without the Cold War, right? There is Russian interference or the threat of Russian interference in every one of these movies. So they are kind of hilarious artifacts in the sense that the Cold War ends in a big way that year and over the next two years. Um, But it really proves that kind of like end of history idea, right? right? Like even when we're talking about underwater sea aliens, like I bet it's probably the Ruskies. Yeah, um, and also maybe, and also I think bad people were just bored as hell by the by the Cold War at this point. These are mediocre times, Chance. Ah, yes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Elijah. Um, do you think all these movies are secretly about the impending burn convention and the establishing of international copyright law? Well, we were joking before we started that like these movies really snuck in under the wire of some kind of copyright overlap. You want to talk about James Cameron's The Abyss? Unless you want to get into uh, the Tiananmen Square protests uh, or David Dinkins being sworn in as the first black mayor of New York City. Uh, I think we can move on to other things from 1989. So The Abyss is James Cameron's fourth movie. So if you haven't seen The Abyss or really, if uh, I guess more specifically, if you have, uh, you must then go to YouTube and watch the under pressure, the making of the abyss, in which the, the principal cast and crew talk explicitly for the better part of an hour about how much of a fucking nightmare it was to make this movie whose third act, the documentary admits, is not that compelling. So the synopsis I came up with, Chance, uh, a deep water petroleum mining team is enlisted by the Navy to rescue a sunken nuclear submarine. It was alive. It was like a, like a dance of light. It was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. I don't think they mean us any harm. I don't know how I know that. Whatever happens, it's up to us. That guy scares me more than anything that's down there. Well, we all see what we want to see. Coffee looks and he sees hate and fear. You have to look with better eyes than that. So the Navy SEALs allegedly need to uh, see if anybody's alive down there. So they construct the help, they enlist the help of uh, this mining crew, uh, which is headed by Ed Harris's Bud. Um, and then Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio, am I getting that right? That's right. Uh, is on hand. She's the person who designed this space age uh, mining rig, and they're exes, so they sort of have a, you know, a Marion Ravenwood Indiana Jones kind of chemistry, or so uh, James Cameron hopes. Yeah, somewhere between there and uh, the crew from Armageddon or something. Yes, absolutely. It's also similar to, I think, to the setup of uh, Alien, of course. We could do like a power ranking of movies that these movies rip off the hardest. But James Cameron is ripping off Alien and his own work in Aliens, probably more so. Um, and the, in the dynamics at play here. Uh, so, yeah, and Michael Bean is... He's the leader of the Navy SEALs. It's on the record that Noah and I really enjoy any kind of environmental psychosis in movies and <laughs> raptures of the deep space dementia. We go nuts for that shit. This dude <laughs> totally gets raptures of the deep. <laughs> right. Yeah. And he like he's just like, okay, if anybody feels like their hand twitched down there, it means you've got to see psychosis, okay? So everybody be on the lookout. <laughs> Two seconds later, his hand is like going fucking nuts. Oh my god, it's so good and so expected. It's great Michael Bean too, because it's a great test case for him, like having a great mustache and being super handsome, but then he's also just kind of like sweaty and evil seeming. It's like, yeah, man, you are you are a leading man good looking. You got leading man shoulders, but like you just the the movies you're in won't let you have it. I think the reason Michael Bean like never was a household name is the fact that 
he is all those things you describe, but he's a little too anonymous. Like it's hard to describe him. Yeah, if you see him without a mustache, like he could be anyone. Right. If if he had taken off the mustache at any point during this movie, he could have been any other character. And I don't think the audience would have known. Right. And then also like mustaches were out of fashion by the time he was trying to become a star. So yeah, maybe it is. I would argue the fashion of his mustache though changes throughout the course of this film. Oh my. You think it gets bushier the crazier he gets? A hundred percent. No, nah, he's not fucking joking, people. <laughs> the look on his face <laughs> was like Jim Cameron telling me that he was going to drown me for a movie that was barely going to make its money back. <laughs> right. Maybe after uh, Chance and I rented it on Amazon or whatever, maybe those $8 put it over the top for earning back what it certainly uh, cost in marketing that wasn't reported. That's right. I think you pose an interesting question here on our Google Doc, Chance, of... Does James Cameron traffic in good characters? Because I think that's the the logical next question and the question that you sort of have to judge all of these movies by is how mm-hmm. compelling is uh, how compelling are the people inside this tin can, you know, six thousand feet underwater? Well, and yes, I think I want to do I do want to touch on that right now. But the reason that I, that that question was raised is because I think. I mean, while this movie has been researched and documented and appreciated by many people who are like probably one generation behind me, it's kind of his most anonymous movie, isn't it? It's certainly not the one I think of when you say James Cameron. It's not the five you think of when I say James Cameron. It probably even comes after the movie he uh, made on Entourage, his version of Aquaman starring uh, (laughs) Vinny Chase. So I think like you have this towering technical achievement we'll get into in a second. A movie that for 1989 looks incredible. Oh, it looks day. so good. And it looks better than probably any movie like this could or would ever look again because of the things that James Cameron insisted on doing. Um, but I think what you're left with, if I can be so bold, is like the equivalent of you know, an alternate universe where like clear and present danger is the most towering technical achievement of like a five year span. And you, so you're, it's kind of like you have a very middle brow movie made by a visionary director without like memorable, very many memorable characters. I, I think that's the thing is I was watching him try to navigate the human side of Ed Harris and Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio was just like, he does keep making these movies that if it weren't for the Terminator, who's not a human, and Ellen Ripley, who already existed, and the incredible synergy of star power with Leo and Kate, his movies don't, like, stick the way movies, like, need characters to stick. I mean, look at Avatar, right? People are having this debate all the time. But, like, one of the most lucrative, groundbreaking movies ever. And people can't, most people can't tell you, like, any of the characters from Avatar. Avatar's terrible. I tried to watch it the (laughs) other day. I also watched True Lies, too. Which is also pretty bad. Um, uh-huh. But yeah, Avatar is only visual and it's a James Cameron who has gotten to the point where either he can't get insured to make movies the way he did like <laughs> The Abyss or he just yeah. doesn't care to because of the amount of bridges he's he burned by treating crew and cast like animals for six months at a time. You should say that that's a quote from our gal Mary Elizabeth. Yeah, who allegedly walked off set uh, after Ed Harris was punching her in the chest for eight straight hours and James Cameron wanted to do just one more take. Right. Yep. Um, Yeah, the stuff he put these people through. So uh, let's talk real quick about like how this movie was made, because that's what a a, a good retrospective is for. Please. It was made in an emptied out North Carolina nuclear reactor. So cool put millions upon millions of gallons of water into built near life-size facilities two of them uh and film the whole fucking thing underwater yeah it's insanity the amount of just technical achievement that went on to fill up that thing with water in a way that would stay clean and yeah. at a temperature that wouldn't kill anybody is inc- <laughs> is incredible 
there's some great tidbits in the doc, which I won't like spoil, but there's some good, really good ones. There's a part where it's just like the water's not the right pH, so it's too murky to shoot in. So and it they starts put like in, burning like, people's skin off. <laughs> very harmful levels of chlorine are added to the water. Um, as the shoot goes on, they find out that the pressure filters are slowly failing, which means that any day the water could just like explode out of the emptied out reactor. Right. At any moment, they've just got 200 million extra gallons of water on their hands, just pouring out the sides of this fucking thing. It's t- it may not be top five notable Jim Cameron movies, but it's like top two Jim Cameron like ego trips because he wants nothing less and he says this than to make the 2001 a space odyssey of underwater films <laughs> i mean at very least this movie got enough money together so titanic could have the both flashback and present day parts to it nice that's if a, anything that's... this is great test footage for something better um but it's it's stunning it is a beautifully shot movie a movie that like i can't remember the last time i felt this way about a movie visually you know what i noticed from the very beginning is when the sub is going down in the cold open you have there are actors sitting in the foreground while the entire set is moving and filling with water in the background. Mm -hmm. And that's a kind of shot that I think we're very accustomed to in the green screen age, because like that's what actors do, is stand in front of things while other stuff is superimposed behind them. Right. But in the age of practical effects, especially compared to Deep Star Six and Leviathan, it's unbelievable to see that kind of mobility in a shot where it's just like, you hold still while I spend thousands of dollars a second to like make everything behind you change um and that was just breathtaking yeah it's so good to watch so you can forget how cheesy and predictable these characters because that's the thing i find so annoying about james cameron is that like he's a big idea guy but he's not like a little picture emotional details like guy not you know like the jack and rose relationship this the marriage at the center of this story they're all like oh people who like have tough time talking to each other but ultimately like fall into pretty typical gender norms sure yeah and if they if you know if the vehicle they're on happens to blow up they will surely fall yeah they'll surely come back together (laughs) yeah like one Um, will drag one's corpse for a little while if need be oh sure uh it's all payoff for that there's a moment there's like a repeated line in here where the script is very clearly trying to make Ed Harris's kind of, um, you know, romancing the stone, charming sexism. And he goes with, uh, Hey, keep your pantyhose on like two different times. Like stop trying to make, keep your pantyhose on happen. He that says it never, no less than three times. That is never going to be in the Oscar montage. Yeah. What is he going to hold up his trophy at the Oscars that fall and be like, <laughs> keep your pantyhose on. We won. Abyss was worth it. It was cool that I almost died. Keep your pantyhose on. It's like the most famous line in film that year. That's what Cameron's hoping for. But look at how this started. This started as a short story he wrote when he was very young because he dreamed of somebody being able to breathe through liquid. Like if that's the origination point, not the uh, complex dynamics of adults falling in and out of love. Right. No. Breathing through liquid. Yes. He needs like a writing partner or something that will give the human factor a little bit of airtime. Uh, right. And I fear that for the same reasons that this movie struggles and all of his movies struggle. Why the the fact that they're making three back-to-back Avatar movies to be released over the course of the next 50 years or whatever uh, is unbelievable and like pretty I, I'm pretty daunted by by such a box office proposition. Sure. They're, they Are gave we... that man a billion dollars. Just hoping he could make three bag. If Ed Harris is alive by the end of the Avatar series, they didn't get their money's worth. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, can we talk about the aliens and how they look? Well, the, okay, hold on. Before we do that, a very funny thing happened for me in all three of these movies, and including in this podcast just now, if you'll notice... It is very easy to watch all three and forget which one's which. 
know for long stretches that there are aliens. Oh yeah, yeah. You yeah. could go an hour through the abyss, and it's just, and then it's like an alien shows up, and you're like, "Whoa, I forgot that there was this too." Well, because you have the two things, right? You have being underwater. It's yeah. like sometimes these movies are Apollo thirteen, and sometimes these movies are Alien. Right. Except underwater. It's like the gadgets aren't working, like the processes by which they're staying alive at depths and temperatures they should not be begin to break down. But yes, then there's always the third act of like, well, well, gee, there's a a fucking alien uh, either (laughs) in the ship with us or just outside. You know, and in that Judgment Day kind of way, I think the the aliens still look really good. Uh, Specifically the... Um, crystalline water snake version. I think the water tendril is breathtaking and uh, cutting edge and all the great things. You know, just the way the Jurassic Park dinosaur, some of that digital work is incredible. Right. I think, on the other hand, the semi-practical alien butterfly guys are pretty lame. The production design of the aliens is not great in any of these movies i would say Mm-mm. like this movie just imagines them as like the little the little green men except translucent right they're kind of like the what will be the um aliens from independence day like minus the weapons and very just much running so. around with like butterfly nets and just hanging out having a great time you know even though when they talk it's truly nothing special. There are a lot of good physical performances in this movie, especially Ed Harris. Um, oh, yeah. Great. And, yeah. And everyone is undergoing, of course, the strain of the actual making of the abyss. But when he swims, when he has to pretend to breathe through water, uh, even when he, you know, is suffering hypothermia and sneaking up on a Navy SEAL, just hoping to hit him in the head, like, it's a it's a dynamite physical performance from Ed Harris. He just does... That that manly cool, I swear. He's great. He's super believable. Yeah. Um, Michael Bean's fine. Uh, Mary Elizabeth yeah. Master Antonio is incredible. She's pretty good. She's really good. Of course, then she gets typecast after this movie as only playing this character uh, next in The Perfect Storm. Oh, that's right. You're heading into a monster. The other Mary Elizabeth movie we've done is The Color of Money. I think that was our only other go-round with her. She's good in that movie. She's did alive. we do The Color of Money? We did. Is that the Tom Cruise pool one? That's right. Is that Martin Scorsese? That's right. Oh, God. You're an incredible flake. In addition, though, so I think the actors are the things that need to stand out in this for them to separate themselves as the ones whose plots kind of run run together and the ones that we remember. Um, And the way they do that is by superseding the somewhat flimsy characters they've been given on their pages, right? You have like Mm -hmm. the sexist guy, the doctor with a secret, the, (laughs) you know, the guy who's sort of the Sam Rockwell from Moon character in uh, Miguel Ferrar. There's always a trucker hat. Oh, yeah. There's always a guy who's like politics don't quite line up with the situation he's in. Yeah. Um, yeah, the hippie guy, sometimes even named hippie. I think that this movie, while you could argue it sets the table for both and is therefore an influential film in terms of, uh, you know, ambition and just how to make something in a void incredibly compelling it's caught somewhere between gravity and arrival um and the gravity half of it is something visually spectacular that people don't if they remember it they don't talk about it because what are you going to say about the abyss unless you're reappraising it on a you know on a podcast people haven't talked about gravity since it came out six years ago um but then the i think the sort of ambitious part of it is the arrival side the idea that these aliens may just represent you know love or god to people who are like down there in some ways like defying the rules of of god and nature but the 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 whole script is not prepared to really meditate on that in a way that arrival is and i think you hit it with the michael bean thing which is that when you think about a movie like arrival the antagonists in that movie are the natural machinations of geopolitics and of people's worst human nature and being like 
Michael Bean has space dementia and he, he, he thinks it's a Russian alien uh, is cheap by comparison. You know what I mean? I agree with you to some extent, but you have to admit, though, in terms of commercial art as a an examination of the fall of the Berlin Wall, this is, of course, the the most provocative. I think that it infers something about the Detroit Pistons' first NBA championship that no other movie before it has. The, the, this movie's read on the fact that Straight Outta Compton by NWA <laughs> sold more than a million copies in 1989 uh, can't be can't be celebrated enough. No, but I totally agree with what you're saying. I think the back half of this movie or the back third of this movie is more interesting with a 2019 read. Yeah. I just think that they bailed out on it so hard. And I mean, allegedly they had like 20 more minutes in there of these tidal waves coming and like just sort of cresting on the edges of major American cities until the aliens see him send the text message, I love you, wife, which uh-huh. gets them to truly like change their opinion of the human race enough to save all of them, which is a, say- a hokey and stupid ending. Right. And we should say that the special edition purports to probably play much more into an arrival-esque read, that we're in for like another Cuban Missile Crisis between the Russians and the U.S., were it not for the eventual solving of this underwater catastrophe. But I don't know that I agree that this movie falls in the arrival bucket of alien encounter movies. I think this movie falls more into the camp of a mission to Mars, which like interesting ensemble cast... Technical special effects look really good, but ultimately the encounter with the alien is not of an, enough of a payoff to have the movie be truly great. Should we rate this puppy? I feel like we're getting there. Yeah, I, I, I'm curious to know where you're going to go. So am I. Um, How we rate movies on this podcast is twofold. If you're new to the show or just need a little refresher, there's a first good-bad gradient. There's a second good-bad gradient. The first, we try to be more objective, which is technical quality. Um, And the second is rewatchability, entertainment value. That's more up to you. I guess even as I explain that just there, this might be kind of easy. It might be a good-bad it may be a good bad. That's an interesting point. I was thinking it would have to be a good good. Okay. I th- it may be an annoying good good because it's like it's fun and it's entertaining to watch. It's way too long. This is what I was thinking about though. When I again going back to Cameron and characters, I think what makes stuff compulsively rewatchable for us, not only us but like you know more broadly, is characters. The entire Marvel Cinematic Universe is based around characters. People, I was thinking about the careers of, say, George Lucas compared to James Cameron. Um, people are much, much, much more likely to know who George Lucas is. And in terms of like good movies made, ambitious movies made over a longer period of time, James Cameron beats him three to one. But George Lucas made Star Wars. And again, it's the characters. And you, you, unless you heard us earlier or have the Wikipedia page in front of you, you can't name any characters or their like, special qualities in this movie if you haven't seen it in a while. What are, like, what would you consider James Cameron's, like, hits? In general? Like, what would be his canonical? What is his Star Wars? I mean, I guess it's Titanic. Avatar and Titanic and Terminator. Terminator probably makes him the most money because think about how many Terminator things there are. There's like 15 movies, so many video games, so much other stuff around it. I mean, just looking at his writer page on his IMDb, it's all Terminator stuff. Right. No, you're right. I mean, it's you're right. It's it's Terminator is the comparison because that's the thing where people are like Sarah Connor, the Terminator, right? Um, The titular Terminator. But the, the work of his, I think, inarguably, that sticks in people's head the most is Titanic. Fine. I think this movie is a good bad. Yes. Cool. I think that's right. I think it's worth rewatching if you haven't seen it in years or oh. if you've never seen it. It's the 30th anniversary, baby. Get on. You, now's the time to watch The Abyss. You know, and I just may go to 
um, there's a, an August 20 something uh screening of it in 35 millimeter at IFC in New York City. I may go to that. That would be rad. A feast for the eyes. I can't imagine how that neon horseshoe crab of a spaceship looks in 35 mil. Okay, have we fulfilled our our responsibility? Can we now just talk roundly? Make let fun? us take it deeper, deeper. I say. In all of these movies, somebody falls off the edge of an underwater canyon. Why they're mining right next to the underwater canyon, I do not know. But I think it's time for us to fall off it. This podcast is brought to you by California College of the Arts MFA in Writing Program. Getting an MFA at their art school setting in San Francisco means that you can write and paint, write and design, and write and make a film. You can also write and write. Look for their MFA faculty member Tom Barbash's novel, The Dakota Winters, out from Echo, and their alum, Adam Nemet, and podcast favorites, We Can Save Us All, out now from Unnamed Press. For more information, open an internet browser and type in www.cca.edu slash writing MFA. I think we should start with Deep Star Six. Let me go to my pre-canned uh, synopsis here. Late on us. Deep Star Six. A deep water construction team discovers an alien life form as they attempt to install a nuclear missile launch pad. Uh, no, this is a Sean S. Cunningham film. From the director of Friday the 13th and really nothing else. I mean, he did other movies, but none in the Melser of note. He definitely transitioned, first of all, sucked up some Friday the 13th bucks and transitioned much more to being a producer. But he had to get this in. What would the world be without this? And then the writer, of course, is Louis Abernathy, famous from being Mr. Bodine from Titanic, directed by James Cameron. Yeah. There you go. Mr. Bodine, of course, was the one who gives them the fine forensic analysis of the way the Titanic sinks in the beginning of Titanic. Below the surface of the sea... Far, far below, in impenetrable darkness, at unimaginable pressure, no form of life we know could possibly exist. Here, there is only silence, and the crew of Deep Star Six. Six months at the bottom of the ocean, it's more than I'm bargaining for. They are explorers. Let's bring it aboard and get the hell out of here. What's the matter? You gonna let a few ugly fish carry? They are invaders. Okay, boys and girls, don't try this at home. In a world which no human being has ever entered. Sonar contact. Down here? I'd like to go out and take a look. Contact closing. 300 meters. What the hell is that? 250. Look at that mother. 200 meters. 150 meters. I think we're in big trouble, boss. Let me ask you this, Chance. Let's play a little game of... Is this the movie's tagline, or is it uh, the tagline for the Trump 2020 campaign? Not all aliens come from space. <laughs> no! Um, I mean, accurate to this film. Not all and, aliens do come from space. Some of them come from wherever they accidentally blew up that cavern. Yeah. And by the way, I wanted to shout out that like this is not a new idea. Like people have been thinking about underwater explosions and like the it's Pacific Rim, isn't it? From. Yeah, and and Beast from 20,000 Fathoms and like Cold War transformative anxiety of underwater monsters got The Meg? Yes, well, not the Meg. I guess the Meg is, is that. He's the Meg is super deep in like a hydrogen bubble or something. The Meg actually owes a lot to the abyss, I feel like. Or Deep Star Six. So, as you pointed out, this cast is a very funny group of people you might know from one other thing. You want to run it down? It's really a who's who of, what's that guy from? Yeah. So, it's Miguel Ferrer is, like, probably the most recognizable person on screen. And he's from, like, Law and Order stuff and traffic. Twin Peaks. And Twin Peaks. Um I think second most recognizable, and this is this is pretty deep, is Matt McCoy, who plays the their corporate attorney 
from Silicon Valley, the one who like is constantly in jail, who plays this movie's resident creep slash Lothario. It's not quite clear. Um, who else you got? You have Elia Baskin, who plays uh, number two under Gary Oldman in uh, Air Force One. He's also Peter Parker's landlord in the Sam Raimi movies. Yes. Three. A character actor by trade. And then I couldn't tell you who any of the other people are. Including the star. <laughs> right. The guy who's like decidedly not Michael Bean. Yeah. Greg Evagen? Evagen? <laughs> As McBride. <laughs> My guy. He's just like, uh, you know, like Kenny Loggins hitting the gym a little bit is kind of his look. And then you got Nia Peoples who plays a very capable but deeply sexualized marine biologist. <laughs> and you've got Cindy Pickett. Isn't she the love interest? Cindy Pickett is the love interest. And again, a deep, all of these people are deeply capable scientists who are also uh, the victims of very flimsy characterization. I would right. hate to besmirch any of these fictional scientists. Right. So this one, you kind of have the dynamic of the older doctor guy, Marius Weyers. Anyway, he's like, I don't care about blowing anything up. Like we have to fulfill this contract or I'm going to lose my job. And he's, he's like very serious. And I think probably they were like, Oh, this character is very serious. We should probably cast someone with a British accent. Right. He's just like a poor man's Michael Caine in this movie. Sure. And the funny thing is, he is meant to be the guy who's like, you'll have to stay down here and and polish my missiles. I don't care if you die. But then him as being the heavy doesn't end up mattering at all because the only bad things that happen in the movie are Miguel Ferrer fucking stuff up like crazy. He's really, yes, it does become a psychological drama about Miguel Ferrer like, being so terrified that even reading the strangest directions, he'll follow them to the T because he just like can't think for himself. He's so scared, which leads him to destroy everything in sight, including his own body. Yeah, because he got sea psychosis. He had the terror, the, the raptures of the deep. You got the raptures of them deep. And so, yeah, Van Gelder's like, if you just secure my missiles, we'll be fine. And Miguel Ferrer's like, ah, oh, fine. And then just like detonates them. And then everyone's like, what did you do? And he's like, it kind of comes out of nowhere too. Cause they're like totally fine. Yeah. But has the beast been released when he blows up the nukes? You're not going to believe this, but these movies are blending together a little bit. In my head. <laughs> no, I think what happens Where does the is, beast come from in this one? Oh wait, it kills the two guys in the mini. They're, sub. they're drilling the, yeah, yeah. They're drilling and they find the cave and then the two guys, the one who looks like a young F. Murray Abraham. Right. And the guy who doesn't like caves <laughs> go down into the cave. And then they, they get eaten by the... Well, first the mini-sub gets eaten by the, the beast. And then yeah. they get eaten by the beast. And then when the beast comes at them, remember they turn their lights off? Yeah. But wait, No. The beast is not even on the ship until after the explosion because Matt McCoy goes out there to fix something that Miguel Ferrer blew up and then he brings the beast back in attached to his You're lower right. body. He does bring the beast the back in. The plotting of this movie is insane. In the seminal shot. Right. Which happens the, the one hour shot. into this hour and 20 minute movie is when the alien finally makes an appearance. Right. I mean, he's fucking stuff up. For the majority of it though but oh, it is unclear bit. why the nukes need to be blown up and the script is not there to justify this guy's breakdown so what you have is like an actor sort of uncertain as to what his character's doing and then just kind of hams it up to a 10 while also being the best actor in the movie by far i would say being the most actor as well I think he's the best actor. Oh, yeah, as well. Yes, I, I'll buy into that addition. Let me try to say something substantive about uh, underwater sea cinematography. There are many parts of this movie where you can tell, and it is obvious, they forgot to make it look like it was underwater at all. <laughs> <laughs> I watched this with my mom, and there's like some exterior shots of the 
uh, of the facility, and she said that just looks like Lost in Space. It does. Network TV show from 30 years before this. (laughs) So that's not great. That's what's so funny about these three movies is that, like, we're at such an interesting time for movie special effects where two of these movies look like something close to 20,000 leagues under the sea. Like somebody putting, like, a submarine through their bathtub. Right. You know, and one of these, most of the principal photography for the movie took place underwater. You want to talk about the monster? If we must. I want to. Kind of looks like the plant in Little Shop of Horrors. It definitely looks like if Predator and the plant from Little Shop of Horrors had sex and had a baby. Or something transgenic. It doesn't have to be so filthy, Noah. Um, maybe, maybe, yeah. The the one had to just like lay an egg, and the other one pollinated it. That's right. Uh, in a non-sexual. Yeah, show some fucking respect to the, to the predator plant. Show some plant. respect to the the plant of Little Shop of Horrors doesn't get fucked. Put some respect on its name that we do not know. Um, <laughs> I will say though that that uh, that horizontal mouth opening has become a very influential, albeit boring, way to design creatures. It's very Cloverfield. It's very Quiet Place. Um, or Predator. Or Predator, yeah. Yeah, I guess. I didn't necessarily have the thought, oh, wow, we're really at a landmark moment for mouths going the other way and beasts. But hey, man. That's your read on this movie. I had to think about something during this shit. The the other thing about this movie, unfortunately, it has a lot of moments that are like classic, you know, midnight movie, 16-year-old basement bad goods. But, dude, it is also fucking boring. Like an It's very boring. It, <laughs> an hour of it is just people being like, something's coming his way. And then, like, the power goes <laughs> out. And they're like, I guess, I guess that wasn't it. Never mind. And then, you know, Van Gelder being like, have you forgotten about my missiles? I, prefer, <laughs> I want you to place those. Hey, can I say live on the air that I have gotten just minutes, like, just minutes and minutes of laughter out of your James Mason, uh, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf impression? Oh, I don't even remember how I did it. Oh, I mean, well, first, I've, I've thought of it a lot because I had a wedding and a kind of a crazy weekend with friends so you were just uh, listening to last week's podcast on repeat no no <laughs> i was saying is i was drinking a lot and i kept thinking of <laughs> you, you kept going, going if noah were here <laughs> he'd be making jokes about james mason i believe the line is another drink martha <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's very good and speaking of 20,000 leaks he should have been in this um when the monster does appear because it's been you know, like special effectless tedium for an hour. Like it is really fun when all of a sudden the lawyer from Silicon Valley has no bottom half and like carries like a fucking pulley, this like monster into the ship. Right. It's fun to see it check off certain like sci-fi and action movie tropes as it goes, I think at a point. Yeah. Like I really liked the obligatory jaws themed uh throwing an explosive into the creature's mouth line of eat this you big sack of fish shit it really rolls off the tongue yeah absolutely in terms of just a piece of like box office property hollywood fair i think this movie is pretty hilarious because if you look it up at imdb and you look at what it made and how much it costs it cost $8 million to make, and it made 8.1. That <laughs> like, that's, so, that's super annoying and kind of funny. Yeah, just, uh, just a maybe, blip on the radar. It may be a glamorous world, but like you are truly just grinding it out to pay your rent. Yeah, man. Everybody did their job on this one. So I'm going to give this ultimately a bad, bad, but can I shout out my favorite bad, good moment from it? And it's such a classic, like, bad, good moment where, you know, the script is rushed, the acting is bad, and, like, somebody comes into the room and is like, your friend, the captain, is dead. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You can imagine that in, like, any number of, like, bad cop thrillers, right? Sure. Um, But, yeah, it's, uh, it's Matt McCoy who comes in to... After, seconds after the captain has been 
what happens to him again? Oh, he gets caught in that yeah. door. Oh, yeah. Kind of like a <laughs> Peter Coyote and Sphere. Exactly like Peter Coyote and Sphere. Um, but yeah, he comes in and he's just like, Hi, McBride. We know you were close with the captain. I wish I knew him better. We were looking through his things and we found a picture of you. And it's like the two of them like <laughs> smiling and laughing at an amusement park. That was funny. <laughs> it's like, you know, we can break it all the way down, but I love the idea of rummaging through a dead guy's things minutes after he was crushed by a door. I love the idea of like a whole photo album of those two, like double dating or getting a timeshare. It's good stuff. What are you going to give this movie? This movie is unquestionable <laughs> bad, bad. <laughs> It's unmistakable bad good qualities, but like you still have to fucking watch it. It's bad, bad. It's bad, bad. I don't know that this one needs to be revisited. You want to talk about Leviathan? I would love that. Now, Noah, when did this film come out? The year was 1989. And would you call this a deep sea sci-fi horror film? Motorola introduced the first flip phone. And they called Leviathan the movie of dreams. And it was. It really was. From George P. How do you say it? Cosmatos. That's right. Famous for Rambo First Blood Part 2, which ironically written by James Cameron. Yeah. And of course, fired from Chance's favorite movie, Tombstone. Was he fired or was he just undermined? Kevin Jari was fired. Oh, I thought it was the other way around. He was the one who came in to clean up the mess. Right. Because the funny thing about George P. Cosmatos is that he is known as a sort of like actor's director in the sense, not the sense that he likes actors, but that actors can tell him what to do, <laughs> which is almost Perfect. certainly why he directed Cobra, which is essentially a movie directed <laughs> by Sylvester Stallone. Um, yeah, why he gets involved with these sort of domineering leading men. Yeah. And, you know, there's all kinds of, I mean, it's open for debate, including in a recent uh, Michael Bean Hollywood Reporter story we both like, but the it's been attested to, including by the man himself, that Kurt Russell kind of directed Tombstone or what was left of Tombstone. Interesting. George, George P. Cosmatos got to sit in the chair. Read these synopsis. These are getting increasingly funny to me. Leviathan is about a deep water mining team discovering a sunken ship and accidentally unleashing a liquid born genetic mutation. Mm. Whatever that means. Sounds like a Leviathan. They seem to, to be convinced of it by the end of the movie that it's a, a genetic mutation. You know I love second only to, to environmental psychosis is uh, fucked up genetic experiments and the people who are like they tried to create a water man um, <laughs> <laughs> and Peter Weller what is if like, man was only given the option of water <laughs> what would he become which again <laughs> I just want to drive the point home that it's so hilarious that this movie hinges on a crazy Russian like. Mengelian experiment to create a hydro person be to do deep sea mining when deep sea mining is not a thing <laughs> that's i mean that's the fundamental flaw of all three of these movies is that the thing oh that God. they are asking these people the exceptional thing they're asking these normal people to do is not in fact exceptional because these normal people don't exist check to seven what's going on out there williams my god are you picking this up look at that Leviathan. Currently with a Russian fleet in the Baltic Sea. Currently it's rusted junk and we're looking at it. What's your air reading? 20 minutes. Do something quick. We've lost him. My crew's in jeopardy. But you have no proof. I'm ordering you to start an emergency medical evacuation. What if it turns out to be nothing? Oh, <laughs> it's already killed one man. It's kind of thingy, isn't it? Oh, Jesus. It's so the thingy. I mean, are you kidding me? This it's, is su this is such a shameless ripoff of Carpenter's The Thing mixed with Alien. But it doesn't have the wherewithal to be as bulbous. And I think that's part of its problem. Like the quick cutting away from the grossness of this movie, I think, is its major flaw. Well, it's not scary. I mean, it goes without saying that George P. Cosmatos cannot build tension like John Carpenter. But right. it's just... I mean, but like, oh my God, the ripoff gets as indulgent as little mouths in people's bodies, which is exactly the iconic sh shot from the thing. Right. Yeah. This movie, though, I will give it the fact that it's got a decent cast. 
I think I'm going to go ahead and say that this is the best hang of the three. I would agree with you. I was going to make that point, too, that I think this is the best ensemble cast of the three movies. Yeah, it's unlikely, but this movie gets off to such a fast start with the alien getting on board and stuff immediately going wrong. I didn't have a more joyous moment than I did when I noticed that this movie, the one I watched third, was just over 90 minutes long. Perfect. Perfect. Half the special edition of this. Yes. And it just, it gets going um, with the plot. It gets going with, you know, flimsy Cameronian characters, if you will. But Sandwich is in like some interesting kind of chatter. This idea, just just one dynamic to get us from A to B, um, which I think is not in the other films, which is Peter Weller being kind of like the disrespected boss. Right, who's like reading self-help books yes. about how to like manage people. He's the geologist who was not ever a leader, but is somehow put in charge of this team. And it's he like has Billy to keep Crudup them. in Alien Covenant. Yes. Nice. Classic reference everyone knows. Um, I didn't know it, but that doesn't mean anything. You have Richard Crenna in there, who I just saw the other night when I rewatched Body Heat, which holds up and is incredible. He's the husband that they murder. In this one, he's like the mysterious Dr. Glenn Thompson. But his dynamic is great. You know that they're at like the 87th day of a 90-day shift and Weller's looking for respect, but everybody only kind of really needs the doctor when they needed him because De Jesus was freaking out. And he was just like, sorry, I was off playing like, you know, 18 holes of golf. And it's just like, you can't, it's been, you know, maybe they stopped trying on the 45th day, but now they need him on day 87 and he's just like an unreachable, like lazy man. And I think he's got a good arc too because he goes from sort of distant lazy man to ultimately well-meaning doctor but don't forget what happened last time right yeah which is like Um, a great thing to hold over him as he evolves and i think makes him an interesting character hector elizondo throwing the uh the union book of like contractual like labor laws at people is great he's great yeah i really liked ernie hudson as jones always good once he has his flamethrower in tow, he really looks at home. What do you think of Daniel Stern? Maybe a little goofy? I don't. I've never liked Daniel Stern. Interesting. Like, he's okay in Home Alone. What about, like, uh, the one with him and Billy Crystal on the horses? City Slickers. He just creeps me out. Sure. Well, he's the resident creep, uh, creepo guy in this yeah. movie. Talking about people's boobs and whatnot. I, can I tell you what? I do like the robotic kind of dynamic between Amanda Pays, uh, Williams, who's trying to be an astronaut right after this. Oh, Willie, yeah. And Peter Weller. Because, like, both of them are, like, very good-looking people, but their, like, voices are not quite right to ever be, like, famous movie stars. But, like, they have that kind of chemistry of, like, look at you two beautiful robots, one of whom is famous for playing an actual robot. Right. Well, that's what I was. I made that joke last night to you uh, about Peter Weller looking like Ed Harris by way of David Bowie. You said he is the David Bowie of Ed Harris's, which I think is incredible. Good. Thank you. Good on you, buddy. Uh, thanks, pal. Um, yeah, but I think it is an interesting dynamic that the two of them never get together, and it's kind of refreshing that they're just like people trying to get through a job, and there's nothing sexual about it, and that's right. pretty cool. Mm, maybe a little something sexual. Oh, yeah. Well, they are in a survival situation. How could it not be sexual? <laughs> I, I think you hit the point, though. This movie, unlike the others, is body horror. And oh, yeah. if you're going to do body horror, you need to find some kind of fucked up satisfaction in that. And I think that George P. is like a little too... He'd prefer that there were more submachine guns and less people's heads coming out of things next you know sure so interesting to me that this movie was written by david people's um unforgiven jeb stewart people's of course did unforgiven and blade runner wow and jeb stewart this is his movie after die hard wow it's so interesting i mean like such commercial fare but like such smart commercial fare that's Maybe it's one of those classic 
things where you had a good script, but you just didn't have the vision as a director or something to really, because if imagine this movie as done by James Cameron, it'd be good. I mean, imagine it as done by Cronenberg or Carpenter. Right. I mean, it'd just be the thing again. Or Ridley but Scott. Like, yeah. It was all, and <laughs> with all of it, George P. Cosmatos is not a good director. You as evidenced by uh, his collaboration here with Jerry. He's Goldsmith. the Michael Clayton of directors. Oh, he's a fucking bag man. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> he's not the one you kill. It's the one you pay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that you know what that makes me want to do, Noah. Go running in the street. <laughs> <laughs> oh, those lights, man. Um. Oh, now I've forgotten. Oh, his <laughs> collaboration with uh, Jerry Goldsmith and the Mournful Horns in this movie is hysterical. I love the Mournful Horns. I know you do. I like the title sequence, which sounds like, and may in fact be, uh, just humpback whale noises put through a guitar pedal delay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Pretty good. Pretty yeah. good. I mean, but like also the music cues in here, like the moment where Williams and... Uh, back have their like did you send him out there to save me she's like i know you don't need saving and like the, the piano just like starts it's just like loud there's no fade in it's just like dun, 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 dun. like they just love each other then at the end it's like that beautiful they come to the surface and it's tri- totally triumphant and then there's sharks for a second because like they had what another million dollars they had to blow on the last day or something like get real sharks in here <laughs> Right. Um, and then it's like really scary, and then the sharks are gone, and they're like, "We're back to the triumphant." Dun 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 dun. And then the monster appears. Like it, it is just the most ham-fisted like music cues imaginable. I think the worst part about this movie, as Ernie Hudson has talked about famously, is the Ooh. fact that he dies for no reason. Well, he dies for no reason. A. But B, he dies being eaten by a monster that looks like a big uh, featherless chicken. Oh, it uh, it definitely looks like an underfed version of the Rancor from Jabba's Palace. Yes. And it's not scary and they know it's not scary. So they like won't hold a frame longer than a second on it. Right. Which makes the ending like nonsense visual language. Totally. Oh, they also very clearly cannot show it in the same shot as the helicopter, right? Yeah, so they clearly didn't like, have the monster on the same day as the helicopter. This is James Cameron's worst nightmare here. Sweeping PBY and then like, you know, real tight end shot at the at the chicken rancor. Um, and they also they didn't make any decisions because first of all, it doesn't look like a chicken rancor when it's like moving around the the place. And it, well, didn't look it, like- keeps, it seems to keep evolving its shape. Okay, that's fair. But by the end, when it's fully, like, erect, uh, it looks like a chicken. Yeah. And it just kind of drowns Ernie Hudson. It doesn't even, like, really consume him. It's unclear to me what Ernie Hudson's cause of death was. Poor Ernie Hudson. Poor guy. Can you believe Gene Siskel gave this movie a thumbs down? I, I can believe it. Oh, all right. Yeah, I can believe it, too. Um, all I that mean, he- said, <laughs> <laughs> what were you going to say? I mean, he was dealing with the emotional ramifications of the first indictment of a computer hacker, Robert Tappan Morris, <laughs> a Cornell student, which was a prominent thing in 1989. <laughs> oh, no. Uh. <laughs> I don't know why he gave it a thumbs down. I think this movie's not that bad. Um, I think it's an easy, bad, good, in fact. Um, it's too, it's far, far too shameless and too poorly directed a ripoff of Alien and the Thing, uh, to be a good, good, but like, it's, it's so watchable. It's It's very watchable. Very watchable. Like, it's kind of fun. Um, you know, it's a good time capsule of like these people who like never quite made it. Yeah. I think this movie's a, a bad good. We're in agreement on all three of these. That's not that interesting. I think it's a good good. That's ins- insane thing to say. Nah, I take it back. Um, George P. Cosmatos does not make good good movies. We have to also say, though, when he's about to blow up Peter Weller, the monster at the end of this great takeaway line. Should we not spoil it for people if they're going to be like, you know what? I'm going to pop on Leviathan. No, tell him. It's say ah, motherfucker. <laughs> Which is such a smile, you son of a bitch. 
like I said, shameless. Truly, very, truly shameless. Shame. Yeah. Uh, okay, we gotta go. This was super fun. Noah Ballard, thanks for what's up. Recognizing this insane bit of IMDb happenstance. Uh, this was fun. Thanks to the playlist for hosting us. Uh, if you want to talk to us, Twitter and Instagram are great places to do so. Listen wherever you get your pods. Uh, we got some more uh, pods about new movies coming out in the month of August. Kind of a quiet time for film, but uh, you never know. Weird, th- weird things happen in August. Weird things. You know what was released in August was The Abyss. Is right. Where'd You Go Bernadette this year's The Abyss? I don't know where she went. Maybe in a nuclear reactor. <laughs> Maybe they shot the whole fucking thing underwater. Right. Maybe that's why it's has its critical screenings are so weird. Okay. Um, <laughs> love you, buddy. I'll talk to you soon. Can't wait. Under the sea. Under the sea. Darling, it's better down where it's wetter. Take it from me. I'll find the sure they work all day.